the last few verses of Psalm 19. Let's focus our eyes there on verse 12 of Psalm 19 this morning. The author David speaks this prayer from his heart, beginning at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Verse 14 has the word meditation in it. It means to think about and contemplate the word of God, to not just move through it quickly, but to ingest what's there, to take it to heart, to apply it, to think about its implications for how to live, how to change. And that idea of meditation is really what turned Psalm 19 into what was to be a one-sermon shot at this psalm to initiate and kickstart 2014 in studying the Word of God this year. It turned this into a four-part series, and I'm glad that that happened. We're on part four, so this should wrap things up, and then we'll start First Peter next week. But this is a key turning point in this psalm because it's the, it's the culmination of everything that David says about creation and the word of God, how God has revealed himself. And, and that is turning in David's heart to a prayer, a, a, a desire, a request, a, a pleading from God for him to be able to deal with his sins. David is not satisfied with just talking about the Bible and how glorious it is, but he now has to turn the searchlight of God's word onto himself. In one sense, he's been magnifying God and his blessings that come down through the word. And now he takes a moment to turn the corner and to apply what he said into his own heart. He's going to places in these verses that Christians typically do not want to go. It's like walking down a lighted street where you have music on the side, cafes and happy people and suddenly things get darker and the street lights are on and you're walking along and then you suddenly turn a corner into a dark alley where things lurk in the shadows, where you feel vulnerable, where you feel spooked, where you don't actually know what's going to be the outcome of your turning down that dark alley. And that's what David dares to do. He dares to take the reader into his or her own heart and 
into the muck and the mire of the sin that resides there. But he does it in a beautiful way because what David has done here in verses 7 through 11 is he has propped up the power and the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency and the glory of God's word. That's what we've been talking about for the last couple weeks. 1 through 6, verses 1 through 6 talk about the glory of God through creation. That's general revelation. And then verses 7 through 11 talk about the glory of God through special revelation, which is the word of God that the spirit of God energizes in the hearts of believers and makes it beautiful, sweet, illuminating, wonderful, comforting, reviving, and powerful for the believer. And so David says, that's what the word of God is. And before he goes into the dark well of his own soul to talk about how black and bleak his sin is, he goes, I'm going to take the word of God and go on belay and dives in with the comfort of the word of God that is sufficient to get him through that journey into the recesses of his sin. It's uncomfortable to talk about one's sin. It's uncomfortable to stay there long and think about how we have offended a holy God, even as believers, how we continue patterns of sin in our lives that we need to deal with. It's uncomfortable to open ourselves up to the vulnerability of our own conscience and say, my conscience smites me because there are things that are yet undealt with in my life. And so I encourage all of you to take this uncomfortable journey this morning with David through this psalm. He's opening up in the form of a prayer. In the form of a prayer. He begins in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? He's asking the question and in essence answering the question as he asks the question. The who is the only who can help. Who can help? The only one who can discern and expose and reveal our sin to us is the only one who can then help our consciences find acquittal. And so that's where he begins this prayer. And just to give a little bit of a theological background, I, I, this is something we all should be participating in regularly. Uh, we are saved at a point in time that's called justification. That's where God declares us righteous. And guess what? You and I had nothing to do with that. God did that work. He saved us by his grace alone, not by works. Then at the end of our lifetime here, we one day die or are raptured, whatever the Lord plans for our lives. But at that point, then we are glorified, and that's called glorification. That's where we have no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more demonic temptations, no more internal temptations. We are glorified, made right with God, fit for heaven. It's where we cross the finish line. Now, justification is um, the legal declaration that we are not guilty and we are perfectly clean before God's eyes, but we still have a sin residue that remains in our hearts. And then one day, all of that is cleaned up entirely 
and we are fit for heaven. And that's justification and glorification. Guess what happens in the middle? This is sanctification. This is where you and I are on a journey of becoming less and less sinful as we deal with our sins and more and more like Jesus Christ. This is a work that we do participate with God in. Justification, it's all God. Glorification, it's all God. Sanctification is where we participate. Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're working and God's working. Who's working? Both. That is the 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That is Hebrews chapter 12, running the race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, who's the author and finisher of your faith. That is the Philippians 3, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching for what lies ahead, to know Jesus Christ. That's work. It's hard work. It's memorizing scripture. It's taking time to meditate on scripture. It's taking time to confess our sins. It's taking time to pray and have a relationship with the Lord. That is hard work. It's hard to flee temptations, to run to Christ. But it's the work, nevertheless, that we've been called to do. Why? So we bring glory to God through his process of us conquering and fighting sins. As we take up the armor of God, as we take up the word of God as a sword to slay the enemy that's within. Hey, listen, our culture is telling us not to do this, even telling Christians not to participate in this because the problem isn't with us, right? According to our culture, the problem is with our victimization. We've, we've been victimized. We were hurt in the way we were nurtured. We've been put down by things around us. Well, our self-esteem is too low, and so that's the problem. The, the enemy is without us. It's outside of us. It's not our fault. And it, it dumbs us down to believe that it's not our fault because the scripture flies in the face of those arguments and says, guess what? Each one is tempted, James 1, 14, by his own lusts. Romans 7, Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, which is a picture of someone who has committed a capital offense. And in Roman government, they would do a horrific thing where they would attach, um, to execute someone, they would attach a dead body, bind a dead body to a living criminal, and the bacteria would eat through their back and slowly kill them. Paul's picking up on that imagery. Who will deliver me from this body of death, a wretched man that I am? So, without the promise of glorification, we could be very discouraged, but we know God saved us, so we are positionally righteous. If we die in the midst of this process, we'll be fine, because justification is a promise that happened in the past. Glorification is the promise that will happen for us in the future. But in the meantime... Between those two buoys, we're called to work with the confidence that God is working in us to both will and work for his good pleasure. Romans 8, 28 and 29. It's a Christian life. We're supposed to work. And 
David, as an Old Testament saint, but as a believer, is exploring that work in the form of a desperate heart cry to God. He's talking in terms of the Bible. And here's the big idea of the sermon. Basically, the Bible reveals our sin to us. It calls us to forsake our sin. And then the word of God, God's spirit through the word of God, gives us acquittal or a conscience that is quieted along the way. Don't you want a quieted conscience this morning? We can find rest in the word of God as we fight against our sin. Well, if you have your outlines before you, I'm not going to review all the different subpoints, but general revelation, special revelation, under special revelation, we come to letter M in the outline. God's word searches the soul. That's verse 12. And you have to understand verse 12 in the context of verse 11, though. Look at verse 11 in Psalm 19. David says, moreover, by them... These are the principles or laws of God. By the word of God is your servant, what? Warned. So the word of God warns us what not to do. And then when we are doing wrong anyway, not heeding that warning, we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And that's what we find in verse 12. David's saying, who can discern his errors? That's what brings us into this prayer. It's a rhetorical question. Who can help me out? Because even though I'm warned by the word of God, I'm not always obeying the word of God. And David's taking us right to sin's source, which is his own heart. And there's no disagreement about or confusion about where sin comes from. I mean, obviously we're tempted externally. We're tempted um, by things you know, outside of us, Christ, who is perfectly pure, was tempted externally, but he was without sin. Nothing was going on inside of him. But Christ is different than us. We are tempted not only by what's on the outside, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, but we're also tempted what's on the, by what's on the inside. And David said in Psalm 51, what? In my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. In other words, guess what? Our spiritual inner man lies to us all the time. It's not that bad. It's not going to get in trouble. God won't chasten you this time. You know better than God on that. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Hey, there's the big ocean of God's grace. Just, you know, blow it off and just, look, you know, don't worry about it. You're not grieving the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, it's not hurting anybody. Nobody knows about what I did. Nobody knows what's going on in my thoughts. It's not really influencing anybody. I'm, I'm doing good things that kind of outweigh my bad stuff. And so I'm okay. Cover, 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 cover. That's what our hearts do. And guess what? You all all have a heart that's sinful and desperately wicked and lies to you. And it would be unloving for me to lay back on that reality with you. It would be unloving for me to be dishonest with you from Scripture and say, listen, I'm okay, you're okay. Let's just be happy in Jesus and enjoy each other and one day we'll die. No, we are called to be fighters, to take up the sword of the Spirit and to work on the mortification of sin in our hearts, Colossians 3. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And in doing so, we will 
be saddened in the process, but we will be blessed in the process and we will give glory to God in the process and we will win people to Jesus in the process and we will rejoice in the process and we will grow in the process and people will grow by watching us grow in this process of sanctification. Why do you have to take time for community group? Why do you have to take time for Bible study? Why do you have to take time corporately and individually for God's word? It's because you need that buttressing for this kind of battle. Why do you let yourself out of those kinds of accountabilities? It's because you just want to not battle the problem that you're facing within. And so that's why we need God's word and his people. Look at the text. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, I am to clarify hidden faults and his errors. I'm going to use John Piper's outline for these verses. So you could go and download his sermons and cross-check what I used. But John Piper was very helpful for me as I studied this text. And he broke the sin categories that David is talking about in verses 12 and 13 down with two um, ideas. One is that we have passive sin in our lives. And then two, in verse 13, we have presumptuous sin that's active in our lives. Passive sins. And what I mean by that is not that we are not guilty of things, but there are sins that are errors or hidden faults that are actually hidden to our own awareness. Hidden from our own awareness. We're doing stuff all the time that's sinful that we just let go. And we, we get used to doing so much that we don't even think those things are sin anymore. Hidden faults, errors that are in our hearts that we just let go. Well, I, you know, outburst of anger. I, I, I was provoked. That person made me mad. You know, uh, well, yeah, I looked at those images on TV or on the computer screen, but nowadays that stuff's so predatory. That stuff's popping up and it's not my fault as someone feeds on something they should not feed on and lust and covets and bows down to the worship of the flesh. People just get used to that. I can watch that. I can view that. I can say that. I can go here. I can do that. Greed, wanting something more than what God is just necessarily providing for you. Uh, Complaining, grumbling under your breath of what you wish was different about your life or even complaining out loud, worry, anxiety. Well, you know, I'm just used to being overwhelmed because that's my personality. Well, the Bible calls all of those things sin. And guess what? The good news about calling those sin is that you can work on them. Are you going to be delivered entirely from anger, greed, lust, coveting, complaining, anxiety? No. But you can grow and get stronger in Christ in those areas. You cannot cow to those sins. You cannot um, lay back in defeat as a defeated Christian. No, the Bible is saying that we are to deal with those things and grow in those areas and stretch and reach and persevere and be more like Christ 
Instead of falling prey in passivity to things that we have gotten used to. We've grown used to these things and we've become blind to these areas. These are passive sins. I have to turn you over to uh, James chapter 1 real quickly. Verse 13. Again, this is soul surgery that James is opening up for us in the New Testament. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Let's stop there. First of all, somehow in the early church, and I'm sure this applies in the 21st century as well, people were blaming God for their sins. Saying, well, it's God's fault. I'm sure that there's a form of um, a hyper unbiblical form of trusting God's sovereignty where it becomes determinism, which is not biblical. And you say, well, Oh, well, I guess that was supposed to happen. I guess I, uh, I can't take accountability for my sin in this way or that way. It just was part of God's plan. And James is saying, don't do that because sin is what resides in you. You were born this way and it's fishing. It's literally luring your heart to as like a fish grab onto temptations and the enticements. That's the dynamic that's going on. And ultimately, this going unchecked will kill you. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, talking about the birthing process, gives birth to death. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's the idea that someone could become so wrapped up in their sin that they are self-deceived so much so that they thought that they were safe and that they were genuinely a Christian and come to find out they were just given over to sin and self-deception to find out that they were actually spiritually dead all along and going to hell. I, we, sadly, uh, I was in a conversation just a few days ago where guy he was a he was a pastor he was he was a leader he had you know a christian family um he had been a professor of mine at one point in my um studies and and this person is just apostate just gone just given over to sin and adultery and left his family and and you just say i i can't no matter how many decades of Christianity that man represented I can't say with confidence that that person isn't dead spiritually unless he repents so he's under discipline now but look at verse 16 it says do not be deceived my brothers don't be deceived that's the self-deluded idea don't give over to passive sins wake up be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. Look at verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So you're either a fighter or you're falling prey to passive self-deception. So who can discern and help us with this problem? Well, the answer is, is found in the question. Who can? Well, only God can. Let me ask this question. How bad really are these sins? 
even the passive ones. Not talking about willful rebellion. We're just talking about the ones that we just let go. Attitudes that are sin-filled attitudes. How bad are they? Well, my wife and I had the, the privilege this week uh, to go down to a conference. It was uh, called the Truth and Life Conference at the Master's College. And um, we were able to connect with some people from our flock here that are students there and, and just get enriched a bit. But in the enrichment process, all of the sermons were actually um, on the topic of sanctification. So we listened to five strong, very strong sermons about sin. So we sort of are chock full of how sinful is sin. Romans 7.24 says we carry around a body of death that we're wretched. We talked about that. John 11, this is uh, one of the highlights of the week was a sermon that was talking about Lazarus and, and Lazarus. And the story of John 11 is very interesting because you have Mary and Martha who are brothers, I mean sisters of of Lazarus, their brother, I don't know if he's a baby brother or whatever, but they're very sad because Jesus didn't show up right away when he was found to be ill, and Jesus, wanting to prove a point about how he's the resurrection and the life, lays back and ultimately reveals, yes, I'm aware that he died. Then Jesus enters into that moment emotionally, as you know. That's where the scripture says Jesus wept. And so he had real genuine compassion as he was proving a point. But ultimately he said, remove the stone. And as was said in the conference, uh, in the good old King James version, you know, Martha's saying, uh, we don't want to remove the stone because yet it's been four days and he stinketh. Well, <laughs> the stone was removed and Lazarus, he's, he's coming out, but he's coming out as a hopping mummy because he's bound in the graves closed and, and mummified. And at that point, Jesus commands, remove his grave clothes. And perhaps the grave clothes could be a, an illustration of what it means to be a Christian. We're raised in this life spiritually. We're raised spiritually from the dead, and yet we still have entangled grave clothes on us that we are fighting to pull off in the Christian battle. Hebrews 12, 1, we are entangled by sin. It's like vines going around our ankles, holding on to us, though we are yet delivered from these things. So how, once the sin is revealed, we, we see how bad it is and how it offends God. How can we get to acquittal? And I love this from the scripture. Declare me innocent, okay? That is the same word used at the end of verse 13. Innocent of great transgression. It's a Hebrew word that means acquittal. It means to be made right. It means to be cleansed. And we're not talking about the initial cleansing that happens at salvation where we are totally cleansed once for all. We're talking about having the cleansed conscience as we fight the battle of our sin in sanctification. How can I... How can I be right with God? How can I go on when I feel so badly about the sin that's inside of me? How can I find acquittal? Do you ever ask that question? How can I just be okay with God? Because the more that I learn about my sin, the worse I feel. That's what David is praying through out loud. Declare me innocent. 
Think about having a, a cleansed conscience. The Hebrew word could also uh, reflect an emptiness. It's the idea that God empties out the guilt of our sin in our lives. Um, as many of you know, we have six kids, and my youngest is named Owen. And uh, Owen's kind of an interesting name. It's an old school name, right? Um, old English type sounding name. But uh, he's named for a Puritan, and that's John Owen. John Owen, one of his most um, beloved books is about sin. It's the mortification of sin. It's a great read. You could download it actually for free um, if you want to do that and put it in a three-ring binder. That's what I did, and I read through the mortification of sin. It's about 90 pages, but one key part of that entire work is where John Owen is talking about how you can be acquitted of your sin as you're trying to kill it. And he said it this way, he says, you know you've dealt with your sin when by the grace of God your conscience is quieted and not accusing you anymore. I think a lot of us are looking for acquittal through works, we're looking for acquittal through the right conversation, the right, you know, moment of reconciliation, praying enough, trying to find the answer within yourself, and instead of looking in for some sort of emotional tranquility, the key is to look out to God, for God is the one and the only one who can quiet your conscience, where it's redemptive, where it's powerful, where it's real. We're not talking about numbing yourself to your conscience with, you know, forms of of drinking or disassociating from life or checking out. We're not talking about building your self-esteem up high enough to where you feel like you've, you've out- grown your guilty conscience by how great you are those are techniques of the world now christian spirituality is dealing with precision with your heart and with sins dealing honestly coming face to face with yourself and then taking your sins to the cross and to christ and saying god you know my sin My sin is ever before me, like David said in Psalm 32. In Psalm 51, when David um, sinned against the nation of Israel and against Bathsheba and against Bathsheba's husband, who he had killed, Uriah, who did he take his sin to and how did he say it? He didn't say, look, I got to get right with Bathsheba. I got to get right with Israel. I got to get right, you know, with Uriah's family. I got to do this. He said, no, God against you and you alone have I sinned. How could he say that? He said that because that was, out of desperation, the only place he could ultimately go to find some sense of acquittal or rest in his soul because he was hurting so badly. His body was wasting away. So he went to God, and maybe Paul helps us a bit with this in 2 Corinthians. I'd invite you to look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you know the story of Paul in 2 Corinthians, he was accused of of many things. People were trying to undermine his authority and his ability to to lead. And ultimately, in verse 12, Paul appeals to the only place he can. I mean, people are saying, look, you've swindled us out of money. You've robbed the churches. Your power is satanic, you are a deceiver, you're a false teacher, you're this bad guy with bad character. In 2 Corinthians, at the end of the book, 1 
chapter 12, it talks about a messenger of Satan terrorizing him. So he's under a lot of duress, and instead of folding in on the inside, he looks up to God as his only court of appeal for being right. In verse 12, he says, for our boast is this. He's talking, you know, he's saying our because he doesn't want to just point to himself, but he's saying our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. He's just saying, I have a cleansed conscience before God. God is my judge and he sees into my heart. He knows my motivations and I've just been in simplicity giving the word of God as the gospel with godly sincerity. If you look at verse 14, he goes to the end of the story in redemptive history. Future, he says, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. When Jesus is here and everything is revealed, we will be able to boast in one another because our boast is in God and what he's done in us, not what we're doing in ourselves. Job is the same, um, is, he gives us the same idea. He goes through the same kinds of accusations as Paul did. If you look in Job chapter 12, or Job chapter 20, you remember Job where he was a very, very godly man. In Job chapter 1, he gave sacrifices daily for his children for the sins that they might have committed in their hearts. That's Job 1. He was a blameless and righteous, God-fearing saint. And then God took everything from him. He allowed Satan to be the instrument of that to prove that Job's faith would stand through all kinds of duress, having his children taken from him, his property taken from him, his wife forsake him, having his health go. And so his friends and counselors come and they sit quietly for a time. And instead of staying silent, they begin to accuse him of things that he's done wrong, believing that Job has brought this upon himself. And if you look at Job chapter 20 and verse 12, you see that Zophar lays into Job. He says, though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue. Stop there. He's basically giving the picture of Job taking sin in his own life and hiding it, just like someone would hide a morsel of candy under their tongue and roll it around and savor their sin. Job is doing the same thing. He goes on to go after his character. Verse 12, though he is loath to let it go, he holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. Now Job does the same thing that Paul did in Job chapter 30, answering Zophar by saying that God will vindicate him. Job 31, rather. Look at Verse 1 of Job 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would my portion from God, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? 
So Job here is appealing to the omniscience of God. God sees in my heart. He knows that I'm not out of control in lust and sin and rebellion against God. I have not brought this on to myself. Look at verse 24. Well, verse 16, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten, he's not, he's saying, look, I haven't been lustful. I haven't been greedy. If I, verse 19, if I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, he's, he's given to the needy, to the poor. Verse 24, if I've made gold my trust or called Find gold, my confidence, if I have rejoiced because of my wealth was abundant or because my hand found much. He just goes on from there. Basically, again, appealing to the omniscience and all-knowing nature of God, saying, God knows my heart. And I think that's where the essence of finding acquittal and quietness is. You know, to be guilt-ridden is really a lack of faith as a Christian. Initially, we are to feel the guilt of our sin. We have to come face-to-face with what we've done, offending a holy God, offending other people, causing wreckage by our sins, and wreckage we have caused by our sins, no doubt, because we're just not even, we're not even aware of how sinful we really are. So there's a lot that's happened as we just live our lives. But ultimately, you've got to deal honestly and clearly and directly with your sin, bringing it to Christ and saying, Christ, you know my heart. Help me deal with my sin. Well, back to Psalm 19. We have passive sins. And then in verse 13, we have a second category. And this is actually a worse category of sins. It's presumptuous sins presumptuous sins. Again, this is taken from a Piper sermon, but it's to go directly and willfully against God's word. It's where you are saying, listen, it's basically pulling practical atheism and saying, I know better than God. It's a child who's standing on the edge of his yard and saying, listen, I know my dad said for me not to play in the street, but the street looks a lot more fun than my yard, and I know better than my parents, and so I'm going to run out in the streets. That's presumptuous sins, and it's worse because the, the, the command of Scripture is clear in our minds, and we violate it anyway. That's what David's talking about. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Remember, God's word, it reveals our sin to us. We're called to forsake our sins, and we're called to find comfort and acquittal from God. And so he's crying out, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. The use of language here poetically is interesting because the sin is actually personified. It's the idea of sin actually being the enemy within that can take dominion over you as a believer. It's where you just give in. You give up and give in. Like you're giving up in a fight to a person. Just say, well, just take over. Just dominate me. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Abel's sacrifice was received by the Lord, Genesis 4. But Cain's was not. And it wasn't that he just gave a sacrifice that wasn't good enough to God, and so he was condemned. It was Cain's wicked 
heart where he was at a crossroads and he was making a clear decision to give over to his sin. He was angry at Abel. He was jealous of Abel. He wanted Abel's blessing that God had given him. And so God approaches Cain directly. And you remember what he said? Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will not Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And this is the same language of Psalm 19, 13. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That's David. That's what David's saying as well. He's praying. He's saying, God, let these sins not have dominion over me. It's what Cain was called to do. He was called to pray that prayer. I don't want the sin to rule over me, so I have to rule over it. And the way that we rule over our sin is by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and saying, God, give me the power and the pardon over my sin. You say, I can't break this sin habit. Perhaps you're sitting there and and the Holy Spirit's just bringing up something that's got you in its vice grip right now. And you're going, I can't can't find my way out of this. And I would just ask you, have you been serious about your sin enough to call it sin? To find it in scripture and say, your word says I'm not supposed to do this. And then are you willing to take the challenge of loading the word of God in your heart? Remember Psalm 19, 119, it says, I hide, I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against God. How do you break sin in your life? You crowd it out, you suffocate it with, by taking in the word of God. The sin residue is gonna be there until you're glorified, but you can suffocate it, you can kill it, you can put some weed killer on it by bringing in the word of God into your heart, hiding it in your heart, meditating on it, making it your food to the point where sin is held at bay. You're going to be two types of Christians. You're either going to be one who has questionable character and a whole lot of doubt, a whole lot of guilt, a whole lot of fear, a whole lot of anxiety, a whole lot of lacking of assurance of your salvation, or you're going to be an overcoming Christian that's persevering, fighting the Christian life, fighting in the Christian life as a Christian, taking up the sword of the Spirit, killing sin, making no provision for the flesh, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ in communion, in worship, in love, in fellowship. Yes, we're saddened by our sins, but you're, you're living the Christian life proactively to the point where your character is called what David cries out for, being blameless. Being blameless. You see that, see that in verse 13. He says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Innocent of great transgression. He's talking about the fight of the Christian fight against sin. What does he mean there? It means there are a whole lot of sins that you will do in the future if you do not do battle with your sin now. There are a great amount of transgressions that do not happen, will not happen in this lifetime if you're fighting for truth, fighting for holiness in your own life. Bible says clearly in the Old Testament and then reclarified in 1 Peter, we're going to see it in a few weeks, be holy as I am holy. There is a clear call to be holy as a Christian, to be innocent, to have a quieted conscience, to be unimpeachable in your character. It's not that you're perfect. It's just that you have not laid back with your passive sins. You've not ignored and then rebelled with presumptuous sins. You're in the fight 
and you're battling. And so as people see you battle your sins and do business with God with your sins, they say, you know what? That man or that woman has a godliness about them. They are a fighter fighting against their sin. And when you fight this way, it turns your heart not only inward, but then upward. Look at verse 14. Your heart turns to worship with a cleansed conscience. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our words turn to worship. Our meditation turns to worship. Our time in the word of God is sweet. Our, our hearts are filled with joy and gladness in the Lord as we are fighting sin. And the word acceptable, let these things be acceptable in your sight. This is Old Testament language that was used in the temple worship of a blameless lamb that would be offered and would be received. That offering would be what God's word calls acceptable to God. And so our hearts become acceptable to the Lord as we worship him by first dealing with our sins. He calls him the rock and redeemer. Let me just say this in closing. God's faithful. He's like a rock in our lives. He's unchanging. We're the ones who are flip-flopping around but he's waiting for us to stand on solid ground. And the solid ground is the gospel. He's our redeemer. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament gospel was where God bought Israel out of the slave market of being under the tyranny of Egypt and Pharaoh. They were bought out of that. They were redeemed. That's the redemption story that's told over and over again in the Old Testament to motivate obedience. In the New Testament, the fulfillment of that gospel is where you and I were bought out of Satan's slave market, which is called this world. And we were bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the redemption story that you and I cling to. And to enjoy that, we must first pray with David to deal with our sins and then find deliverance with a quieted conscience where it turns into love, wonder, and praise, worshiping God, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time and your word. And thank you for this particular psalm that I believe you brought to our attention as a church and as a people. Lord, we are committed to being deep in the word, and this is a call for depth in scripture, and I praise you that the depth brings us high in worship, and Lord, I pray that we would be unashamed of our Bibles, that we would be Bible people, because we carry the truth that reveals the one whom we love most of all, which is Jesus Christ. It also reveals our sins, but thank you that you've revealed to us a Savior, which gives us a cleansed conscience as we await final deliverance on the day when Jesus will return. Thank you for this time and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I just want to encourage you, um, those of you who are new here or